Welcome to the May 19th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, we'll feature new research demonstrating that certain HLA-DQ heterodimers can help predict clinical outcome following hematopoietic cell transplantation. Next, we'll review a recent integrated and comprehensive genomic analysis that sheds new light on the molecular characteristics of large granular lymphocyte leukemia and its subtypes. Finally, we'll review the work of a group that proposes a new and more accessible hemochromatosis classification system based on clinical characteristics and genetic features. Let's start with an article entitled HLA-DQ Heterodimers in Hematopoietic Cell Transplantation, or HCT, from Effie Petersdorf of Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle and other authors, on behalf of the International Histocompatibility Working Group in Hematopoietic Cell Transplantation. In it, the authors describe a new paradigm in donor selection that could help reduce the risk of relapse for patients with malignant disorders who undergo HCT. In recent years, molecular and cytogenetic testing have been used increasingly to identify high-risk patients with malignant diseases in whom allogeneic HCT may be beneficial. However, the success of HCT is impeded by major barriers, including graft-versus-host disease, as well as disease relapse, which is the most common cause of death after the procedure. The likelihood of both severe GVHD and disease relapse is influenced by differences in HLA antigens of the donor and recipient, including the class 1 antigens, HLA-A, B, and C, and the class 2 HLA antigens, HLA-DR, DQ, and DP. When evaluating unrelated donors for HCT, current standards call for evaluation of exons influencing the peptide-binding domain of HLA-A, B, C, and HLA-DR to lower post-transplant complication risks. Much less is known about the potential contribution of the other two class II antigens, HLA-DP and DQ. There is growing evidence that these may also be important, however. The HLA class II antigens have some of the strongest associations with autoimmunity of any marker in the human genome. For example, HLA-DQ has been associated with type 1 diabetes mellitus, celiac disease, and narcolepsy, suggesting these molecules play a major role in human health and disease. As is true for all of the HLA antigens, sequence variation in the peptide-binding domain of these molecules results in host defenses against a range of foreign antigens and tissues. Given the linkages between HLA-DQ and autoimmune diseases, the contribution of these molecules to both alloreactivity and anti-leukemia cytotoxicity in the setting of HCT has become of increasing interest. In the present study, investigators sought to evaluate the impact of specific HLA-DQ molecules on clinical outcomes, based on a large international clinical transplant experience covering more than three decades. The HLA-DQ class II molecules are heterodimers, formed by the pairing of the alpha-chain protein product with the beta-chain protein product of the companion gene co-inherited from the same parent. The investigators assessed outcomes in patients with life-threatening blood disorders who underwent transplant from an unrelated donor between 1988 and 2016. The analyses included 5,164 HLA-matched patients, 
and 520 HLA-DQ mismatched patients, along with their transplant owners. Patient and donor alleles were identified using high-resolution molecular HLA typing. The HLA-DQ heterodimers were classified as Group 1 or Group 2 based on their alpha and beta chain composition. Group 1 included those with alpha chains from any DQA1, O2, O3, O4, O5, or O6 alleles, which form stable heterodimers with beta chains from DQB1, O2, O3, and O4 alleles. Group 2 included those with alpha chains from the DQA1, O1 allele, which forms stable heterodimers with beta chains from the DQB1, O5, and O6 alleles. The parentally inherited HLA-DQA1 and HLA-DQB1 alleles define the HLA-DQ genotype of an individual as group 1, group 1, group 1, group 2, or group 2, group 2. First, let's look at the HLA-DQ genotypes of the 5,000-plus HLA-matched transplants. 33% were group 1, group 1, 50% were group 1, group 2, and 17% were group 2, group 2. In multivariable models, patients with group 2 molecules were associated with poorer outcomes as compared to those with only group 1 molecules. Specifically, compared to patients with the group 1, group 1 genotype, patients with group 1, group 2, and group 2, group 2 genotypes had higher relapse and lower disease-free survival rates. There was also a dose effect noted. Essentially, the larger the number of unique group 2 molecules, the higher risk of relapse. Note that group 1, group 2 genotype patients have only two unique HLA-DQ molecules, while the group 1, group 1, and group 2, group 2 patients may have up to four due to transdimeration. So for these HLA-matched patients, as the number of G2 molecules increased, the risk of relapse also increased and disease-free survival decreased. Conversely, as the number of G1 molecules increased, the risk of relapse decreased. These results were echoed in the smaller cohort of HLA-DQ mismatched patients. Investigators found that the type and number of mismatched HLA-DQ molecules affected the risk of relapse after HCT. By contrast, investigators were unable to establish strong associations between group 2 molecules and graft-versus-host disease in either HLA-DQ-matched or mismatched transplantation. This may point to opposing effects on relapse and GVHD. Further investigation is warranted, according to the investigators, who said that presence of group 2 HLA-DQ molecules may put the patient at higher risk of relapse despite recognition of minor histocompatibility antigens that may stimulate graft-versus-host recognition. In a commentary, Alan Bigdoli and Sophie Pazesny of the Medical University of South Carolina said that this work represents a novel paradigm for HCT donor selection that could better predict the risk of relapse for malignant disorders. Based on this work, the commentary author said, HLA typing can be expanded to include additional information regarding HLA-DQ heterodimers, and more attention could be paid to HLA-DQ matching when donors are being selected. They added that in the setting of HLA-matched transplants, High-risk patients with the group 2 genotypes could benefit from alternate strategies to reduce relapse risk, such as earlier discontinuation of immunosuppressive therapy. While in the mismatched transplant setting, these data raise the question of whether a patient with very high-risk disease could benefit more from a mismatched group 1 donor as compared to a group 2 donor. Although further research is needed, 
Petersdorf and study co-authors say their current findings indicate that HLA-DQ molecules are classical disease association markers in transplantation. The number and nature of HLA-DQ molecules impacts risk of relapse after HLA-matched transplantation and after HLA-DQ-mismatched transplantation. According to study authors, a paradigm based on HLA-DQ heterodimers helps define the hematopoietic cell transplantation barrier and provides a means to lower risks for future patients. The next article is Genomic Landscape of TCR-alpha-beta and TCR-gamma-delta T-large-granular lymphocyte leukemia by Heejin Shon of University of Virginia School of Medicine in Charlottesville and co-authors. In his research, Chon and co-authors use combined whole exome and transcriptome sequencing in the largest cohort of patients with LGL leukemias studied to date, highlighting the clinical and molecular heterogeneity of LGL and its subtypes. Large granular lymphocyte leukemia is a group of rare lymphoproliferative disorders. T-cell LGL leukemia accounts for about 85% of cases, while NK-cell LGL leukemia affects approximately 10%. There are two types of T-cell LGL determined by the type of T-cell receptor being expressed. Most T-LGL leukemias express T-cell receptor alpha-beta, and a small percentage express T-cell receptor gamma-delta. Although about one-third of patients with LGL leukemias are asymptomatic at presentation, neutropenia is commonly seen in the other two-thirds. Asymptomatic anemia can also be identified, with 10% to 30% of cases exhibiting transfusion dependence. While watch and wait is appropriate for some patients, most will eventually require treatment, which typically includes immunosuppressive agents such as methotrexate, cyclosporin, and cyclophosphamide. The molecular landscape of LGL leukemias remains incompletely defined. Somatic activating mutations of STAT3 are common, occurring in up to 75% of TLGL and 48% of NKLGL leukemias. Patients with STAT3 mutations typically have lower absolute neutrophil counts, though the association with anemia is variable, depending on the study. Beyond STAT3 mutations, there have been some small-scale studies of whole exome sequencing encompassing a few dozen T and NKLGL cases, and one study of whole genome sequencing in NKLGL leukemia. In the current study, Chon and colleagues report the most extensive paired exome transcriptome study of T-cell LGL leukemias to date. The report is based on analyses of saliva and peripheral blood samples from 105 patients including 93 with the TCR-alpha-beta subtype and 12 with the gamma-delta subtype. Altogether, they found 76 mutations that occurred in three or more patients. Of those mutations, six were shared between the alpha-beta and gamma-delta subtypes. These included mutations of STAT3, KMT2D, PIK3R1, TTN, EYS, and SULF1. Investigators identified 15 putative driver genes out of the 76 mutations occurring in three or more patients. STAT3 was far and away the most frequently mutated gene across the subtypes, seen in 53 out of 105 patients, or just about 50%. They found several other putative drivers that interact with the STAT3 signaling pathway, including TNFAIP3, PIK3R1, and FAS. 
They also found a number of putative drivers encoding epigenetic modifying enzymes, including KDM6A, KMT2D, TET2, and DNMT3A. Of note, mutations in epigenetic and chromatin modifiers, particularly KMT2D and SETD1B, tended to co-occur with STAT3 mutations. The investigators further tested whether mutational groups were associated with specific clinical features, including neutropenia and anemia. They stratified the STAT3 mutation group into common somatic variants, including Y640F, the most common, occurring in 31 cases, N647I, which occurred in 11 cases, and D661Y, which occurred in 9. The most common Y640F STAT3 mutation was associated with significantly lower absolute neutrophil counts. By contrast, the N647I mutation was associated with significantly lower hemoglobin values. Investigators also compared STAT3 mutated and wild-type patient profiles to look for distinct molecular signatures. STAT3 mutated patients had an increased mutational burden as compared to STAT3 wild-type patients. In addition, Gene expression analysis showed enrichment of interferon gamma signaling and decreased PI3K AKT signaling for the STAT3 mutant patients. In a commentary, Gianpetro Semenzato and Renato Zambello of the University of Padova and Veneto Institute of Molecular Medicine in Italy said these findings offer new clues into the pathogenesis of mature LGL disorders. The commentary authors said that the extensive genomic approach used by Chon and co-investigators sheds light on unique differences between STAT3 mutant and wild-type leukemic samples that encompass mutational burden and signatures, transcriptome, and clinical associations. This and other recent studies make an important contribution to the LGL leukemia field, Semenzato and Zambello write by expanding our understanding of LGL leukemogenesis and improving classification of these disorders. As with other hematologic disorders, the time has arrived to use molecular genetics as part of the routine diagnostic workup for LGL disorders. Several research issues still need to be addressed. However, the commentary authors conclude that findings from this and other recent studies provide, quote, genetic barcodes, unquote, to design new therapies and expand treatment options. That concludes our summary of this article, which is available for CME credit. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. The final research article is entitled Hemochromatosis Classification. Update and Recommendations by the BioIron Society. The first author is Domenico Girelli of the University of Verona in Italy. In this article, Girelli and co-authors describe a new, user-friendly classification system for hemochromatosis that they hope will facilitate the proper diagnosis and treatment of this condition. Hemochromatosis is a genetic disorder marked by uncontrolled intestinal absorption of iron. This can lead to progressive iron overload, putting patients at risk of organ damage and a variety of potentially serious complications, such as diabetes, heart failure, and cirrhosis. The current classification scheme for hemochromatosis reflects the successive discovery of gene mutations that affect hepcidin, the master regulator of iron homeostasis. Hepcidin is a small peptide hormone produced by the liver that negatively controls circulating iron levels. Through interaction with its receptor, 
Ferroportin, which is the only cellular iron exporter in humans, hepcidin inhibits the absorption of dietary iron in the duodenum. More than 90% of hemochromatosis patients of Northern European ancestry have mutations in a gene termed HFE, which controls how much hepcidin is made by the liver. Mutations in HFE reduce hepcidin production, leading to increased iron absorption. Over time, it became apparent that hemochromatosis was genetically more heterogeneous than previously supposed. Researchers identified mutations in other genes, collectively referred to as the non-HFE genes, that were also associated with hemochromatosis. These genes include TFR2, which encodes a second receptor for transferrin, SLC40A1, which encodes ferroportin, HAMP, which encodes hepcidin, and HJV, encoding hemojuvelin. Those discoveries led to the current classification system based on which mutation is present. Recent textbooks, guidelines, and review articles typically use a series of numbers and letters to subdivide hemochromatosis based on genotypes and their associated clinical features. There are four types, two of which are divided into two subtypes each. Type 1 refers to hemochromatosis caused by pathogenic variants in the HFE gene, the most common form of the disorder. Types 2A through 4B refer to hemochromatosis caused by specific non-HFE genes. However, there are a few problems with this system of classification. The first is that most laboratories are not equipped to identify genetic causes of hemochromatosis beyond the most common HFE-associated variants. Identifying rare genetic defects can be time-consuming and expensive, requiring patient travel or sending of DNA to referral centers. Second, the current classification system does not take into account the possibility of digenic inheritance. While rare, there are cases reported of hemochromatosis derived from a combination of pathogenic variants and two separate genes involved in iron metabolism. Also, the current classification does not account for clinical hemochromatosis without variants in the classical HFE and non-HFE genes. The authors of the current report also argue that hemochromatosis type 4A associated with SLC40A1 mutation, is actually an iron overload syndrome that does not fit the classical definition of hemochromatosis. Likewise, the type 2 molecular subtypes in the current system are sometimes referred to as juvenile hemochromatosis, which authors say may be misleading or ambiguous, given, for example, that some patients can be diagnosed in adulthood. Because of these issues, members of the BioIron Society felt it was time to revisit hemochromatosis classification. They sent a survey to members of a working group that included leading expert clinicians and researchers in iron metabolism, many of whom were personally responsible for new genetic insights into the regulation of iron metabolism. That was followed up with a discussion during a session at the biennial meeting of the BioIron Society in Heidelberg, Germany. Participants came up with a novel classification system for hemochromatosis, which is now published in the Blood Journal. This new classification system splits cases into four categories, HFE-related, non-HFE-related, digenic, and molecularly undefined. The system puts more emphasis on clinical features of the disease, which according to working group members may avoid the challenges related to second-level genetic testing for rare variants, which can delay diagnosis and treatment. More specifically, the work group proposes that a diagnosis of HFE-related hemochromatosis can be made in patients with clinical, biochemical, and imaging findings suspicious of hemochromatosis plus the cysteine-282 tyrosine homozygous mutation, 
By contrast, patients with a clear hemochromatosis phenotype but no such homozygosity can be provisionally classified as molecularly undefined. In this case, the total amount of iron removed by phlebotomy can serve as an additional marker of iron overload. Based on results of next-generation sequencing, some molecularly undefined patients may then be reclassified as HFE-related, non-HFE-related, or digenic. In an accompanying commentary, Kaim Hershko of Shire Zedek Medical Center in Jerusalem said this new proposed classification system is much more than a rearrangement of existing hemochromatosis subgroups. The new classification, which reflects two decades' worth of hemochromatosis research and expert insight, is user-friendly for non-expert clinicians and patients alike, Hershko writes in the commentary. The classification system relies on simple and accessible clinical tools to establish suspicion of hemochromatosis, such as increased serum ferritin, transferrin saturation, and increased liver iron concentrations. Hershko said this approach will eliminate unnecessary concerns regarding patients who experience nonspecific increases in serum ferritin related to conditions other than hemochromatosis. Although the principles guiding these recommendations are sound, a critical assessment of the benefits or limitations of the new classification would only be feasible following long-term monitoring of patient health and quality of life, Hershko concludes in his commentary. Overall, the new classification system reported by the BioIron Workgroup may be of practical help in clinical practice, particularly when detailed molecular characterization of hemochromatosis is not available or not possible and should aid in the prompt diagnosis and treatment of hemochromatosis in clinical practice. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs>